Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back for another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today I'm going to do something entirely different. I'm going to do a little retrospective on my life and Judy's life relative to how keto changed that. So how I propose to do this is to, in essence, retell our calamity of seven years ago, about seven years ago, eight years ago, really, and superimpose or inject lessons that I've subsequently learned, medical lessons, you might say, lifestyle lessons that uh, both in terms of what the cause was, the etiology of this whole whole situation, and we had different causes, different etiologies, and then the degree I thought things were very helpful in resolving them. And I think we're 100% now. So in my view, if nobody else's, I think it's remarkable. I think probably in of my siblings, I think it's remarkable as well. But it was a pretty dark time. And so I'm going to go into those and you know, signpost some particular lessons as we go uh, and understanding why these things happen. And not just in a, you know, oh gosh, this is what happened. And no, a little go a little deeper because these are actually big points, especially now that when I'm coaching others, I ask them to do four tests. You know, one is a metabolic list of tests, which are a number of uh, blood labs. Then they go off to another lab to get their lymphocytes looked at for micronutrient levels. Then they do a timed sequence, sequence timed urine hormone panel. And then they look at their genome. So this is the lens that I look at people now. And I think that's not perfect. I don't think there is perfect out there, but it catches things that I wouldn't have caught otherwise had I just used our standard lab work or your standard lab work when you go to see your doctor. It's just a little bit too reduced. And to defend family physicians who see their people annually, their patients annually, it's like, well, they can't do everything unless they suspect something. They're not going to cast a big net. For one, they probably won't be reimbursed or covered by insurance. And the other is it may be outside their area of expertise. Okay. So there's the defense there. And that's why that's not done. However, given people like myself, both being a naturopathic doctor who tend to look under rocks where other people don't look uh, to, meaning labs and so on, and ask questions that others don't, 
we do cast a bigger net initially. And so, and sometimes that's hard to justify when somebody just comes in through the door as your patient, hey, we're going to do all these tests. No. So now in working with happens to be men, and then it's going to be women, and then it's going to be autoimmune categories, is that this bigger net is well justified and it shows us things that we would not have seen otherwise if we just did the standard test. Okay, so we're going to be, begin from there. And I'm going back before all of this, before keto, well, well, before keto, even before keto was known. Okay, so back in my, my past was obviously a naturopathic doctor, graduated in the late 90s uh, from Bastyr. Speaker of the class, if you want to know what that is, that's kind of neat. Everybody else votes on who they think is going to be kind of the uh, sort of the best doctor, blah, blah, blah. You sort of obviously have to be academically good. So I was, and then you have to, I was given that privilege and you don't ask for it. It's just given to you. Uh, and then you have to do the class speech uh, in front of a thousand plus people for the college and the university. So that was all fun. Off to that, I went to work for a small uh, naturopathic group in Mystic, Connecticut, which we lived for a fairly long time. And then I started my own practice over in Old Lyme, Connecticut for a while. So in doing all those things, it might sound good from the outside, but when you graduate from school, med school, a huge student loan, huge student loan. So that sits on your shoulders forever. I'm not going into the politics of student loans. I have an opinion on that, but that's not here or there. I'm just saying that, yeah, you work for somebody else, but you have a lot to pay back. And when I started my my own practice, um, primarily because patients had asked me to get a separate practice going because I did different things than the group that I was working with, that you have to rent a place. And so now you have this big overhead and you have to get all the equipment. And we did do that for a couple of years. And you know, we did a build out of 1500 square feet. When you think about it, that's the size of somebody's house, small house. And then we realized, you know, we can scale this. So we bought a complete medical building that was coming up for sale in, I think this is 2000, say 2010 ish in there. I can't remember the date we bought that. So we bought a whole building. And now since we proved to ourselves that we can make this business work, and it was viable. And now we can bring other practitioners in and extra services like massage or we bought a building, refurb that, you know, so now we're into three quarters of a million dollars debt <laughs> in terms of my student loan. But we thought we had proved concept, proof of concept in terms of this business was viable and the profitability. Well, little did we know a couple of years after getting that building and doing all this work on it and getting the practice up and running and subbing out other spaces uh, in this building, which is what you do, and the practitioners and so on, psychiatrists and so on. Uh, it was a, a fun group that 2008 came and suddenly it just sucked the air out of apparently Southern Connecticut. It was hit worse than other states. So our patient load, everybody's patient loads was cut by half. People weren't even paying their copay. This is, this is specifically August of 2008. We have that etched in our memory of being the beginning of what just happened. It was like, it was like the, the low tide before a tsunami. You know, suddenly you have this, if you don't know a tsunami's coming, you suddenly have this hellaciously low tide and you go, what's happening? Well, that was kind of with us, what's happening? What just happened? 
did somebody just pull our ads or somebody, you know, uh, had nothing to do with bad publicity at all. And, uh, so that stretched on and we, we kept functioning for the next three years. And, uh, what happened is our tenants couldn't make a go of it. So they left. So now we had mostly a vacant building other than my practice. Fast forward in all this, uh, we did have to file bankruptcy in 2012, I believe it was. And in that one year, here's what happened. Uh, my wife was diagnosed with a meningioma the size of a small plum. And I say that because you have such specific and incredible digital imaging that you can literally see how big, it's actually bigger than a large, it's a large plum. And it was under her optic nerve, right, left and right, what they call it, optic chiasm. So uh, she inevitably eventually lost vision in her right eye. She can see shades of dark. But as that was approaching, so now we're at 2010, 11, and 12, each year she would go to a retinal ophthalmologist who misdiagnosed, thought she had a psychological disorder. And finally, at the end of the third year, even though each year we asked for, let's get an MRI, third year, he said, well, let's get an MRI and sent us down to New Haven, which is a couple hours away, Connecticut. And that night we got a call from that um, neuro-ophthalmologist said, you need to come back tomorrow and I need to sign you up for um, surgery. So that was pretty dire. So, and then there's the healing of that. So that's, and she then had about a uh, 11 or 12 hour brain surgery, uh, craniotomy. And that happened in 2012. So also in 2012, we had now closed the practice. It was just not viable. We were hugely in debt. We filed for bankruptcy. And uh, in the course, the upshot is, of course, student loans are not expunged, but um, we had to, we lost everything. Cars, uh, the home we could, because it was state of Connecticut, they couldn't come after our home. So we had a home, uh, that, that was it. It was all gone. We were so certain of our future that we put all our savings into the rehab and said, this is the way it's going to go. So all that was gone. Judy was scheduled for surgery the beginning of 2013. And the previous three or four months, I started getting a GI. My, my gut stopped working. You know, that was, I was not even going to the bathroom. I thought, well, this is odd. Fast forward on that after sort of fighting my way into getting a colonoscopy locally that I was diagnosed with the most extreme case of Crohn's and ulcerated colitis they had ever seen in this regional hospital, uh, L&M in New London, Connecticut. So, so that was fall of 2012, just a few at the concurrent with the diagnosis of Judy's imaging saying, yes, she has a brain tumor. So I go out, that's, and the filing of bankruptcy. And at this time, my only brother died of multiple myeloma and had to be taken off of life support. My mother had died just six months before. So when all this finally came crashing down around us, um, it was odd to go from feeling great promise to nothing at all. So now looking back, how do we look at this? So can I assess where I think Judy's brain tumor came from or meningioma? I would say that when we bought the building, I did a lot of weekend work on that for the first year, you know, take off my 
you know, doctor's role and become a handyman with others uh, for the weekend. And in the, as much as we were choosing low VOC, volatile organic compound paint, uh, there's a lot of, when you do that much painting, it's toxic no matter what brand you get. And a lot of the polyurethaning of services we were doing. And I think that in her, she was my front desk as well as doing an entirely different occupation. She was a database analyst for a whole other company that she was breathing that in. So I think it was toxic exposure that led to her meningioma. There is no set etiology for meningioma, unfortunately, but that's some people think it's more common in women than in men. So therefore they think it's uh, hormonally es- um, sensitive, estrogen causative, they think. So there's that. So then I get diagnosed and I get put on steroids immediately. And I develop a uncontrollable anemia, a gut bleed that brings my hematocrit down to a level of 15. So what that means is you being a normal person have about nine cups of blood in you, right? So if you cut yourself, that red stuff coming out is serum and blood platelets, you know, it's white and red cells and whole nine yards. You have about nine cups of that in you. Uh, well, I was struggling with under three cups. So I was severely anemic and uh, was forced to change, uh, look for another doctor because I felt I was clearly going to die. Judy thought I'd be dead by December before her surgery. And uh, we did find another doctor. Or we got uh, I got four blood transfusions. So that brought me up to viability, meaning life could extend. And it was interesting to see that, how you're when you're so anemic, your heart has to work extra. So my beats per minute were 140 beats per minute lying down on the floor with totally passive. So um, I couldn't walk up the stairs. It was too much for me anymore. Things like taking out the garbage were an extraordinary effort taking an hour or so. So it was looking pretty grim to say the least. So as time moved forward, the blood transfusion suddenly gave me a, a vitality back So let's pause at this point to look back on that particular situation. So looking back, we think that she had a progressive exposure to environmental toxins from the paint and the polyurethane would be my guess. And we had poor diagnosis for those first three years of her. And so myself is that I had a stress-induced Crohn's and colitis. And so Crohn's and colitis are pretty similar just call it inflammatory bowel disease. They are called inflammatory bowel diseases, slightly different. One's thought to be a little more uh, small bowel and the other is thought to be a little more large bowel and there's other differences too. But for the most part, anyways, it was pretty bad and highly inflamed. So they put me on the steroids. So steroids is generally considered an anti-inflammatory. But me being stressed out and carrying that internally for the previous couple of years probably, that I was already on my own steroids. So I was like pumping out cortisol. Nobody thought about measuring cortisol. It's not something that doctors do. You know, they, they sign you up for this, for the next surgery. You know, are you, can they help you or not? Are you a customer to their particular specialty or not? Um, so that was nothing one looked into and it was just assumed it was caused by stress. That's the end of the story. That's the end of the blood work. Well, when you are subjected to prolonged elevated levels of cortisol, we're not talking a day or two, we're talking months, if not a year or two, it affects a lot of your immune system. And so 
to give me something I'm already making made that problem worse. And so they weren't, this is, this is kind of the level, this guy's business was huge for getting colonoscopies for everybody and then following up on various minor surgeries or not minor surgeries. And it was a, it was an empire. So he really didn't care about my particular case. And I would call in saying, can we get some blood work on me? I want to see where my hematocrit, that uh, which is measuring your blood, your CBC. Uh, and he, and my voice was getting to be scary because with the blood, you have a bizarre voice and people don't want to call you because they think you're going to croak on the phone while you're talking to you. But I would call and leave a message and he would call back and saying, why am I micromanaging him? Why am I asking for these tests? So off to another doctor. This is important. So the cortisol is anti-inflammatory, but it also tends to break things down. So it opened up gaps in my gut and probably elsewhere, but primarily the first place that happens, you open up this gut. So this GI bleed, as they call it, um, is a pretty common step in high stress situations. So if one was stressed by any way, you know, business and so on and so forth, a bad relationship, this is what it happens. It hits your gut first. And you can say you have a gut feeling about this. Well, that's one of the reasons you have a gut feeling about it. Your gut doesn't feel so good. And that's telling you, you keep up the situation and I'm going to start bleeding on you, so to say. Okay. So there's, there's where that first level came from. Therefore, cortisol is a big driver, needs to be assessed along with obviously things like CBC and looking for blood levels. Okay. Let's progress. Okay. So that was done. I was put on medications that were shutting down my immune system called tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitors, otherwise known as Humira and a few others. And that caused significant side effects, aches and pains and uh, mental discomfort for sure. So life wasn't going so great. And Judy had her surgery and waited for that. And so there was nobody taking care of us. We don't have any kids. Though as much as I have siblings, it's an odd relationship. Maybe you can relate. So we pretty much had to take care of ourselves. We had uh, former patients were coming over to do, drop off food for us. And uh, some were driving across the states and so on and so forth. But uh, not so much family. Anyway, um, when you look back, why was, this, why was this stress so pronounced in me? And probably in Judy expressed in another way. Sure, contributed to her brain tumor as well. Well... As much as we had a huge garden and we did, you know, organic veggies and so on, we weren't vegetarians. We had some meat. You know, I wasn't, uh, we were, I was big in salmon. Uh, I still like salmon and we, I would go out and grill it. But we were primarily a lot of salads. We made a lot of relishes and we had a whole a basement full of all the things that primarily Judy made every year. And so anyways, it was, I wouldn't say it was a high carb. Certainly wasn't a high refined carbohydrate diet, but it was high carbs. And we had our breads and we had our, our treats. So the thinking about low carb, high fat was not even in my vocabulary. It was not even a thing. If you said that in front of me, then it wasn't even anything I could react to. It was, it would have been an unknown reference. Um, so when you are in a high carb environment, diet, lifestyle, whatever you want to call it, it is a lot easier your inflammation in that environment is a lot higher than the inflammation if you're in a ketogenic diet. Why is that? Well, the simple answer there is that ketones in and of themselves are an anti-inflammatory. They are tremendous anti-inflammatory. So just black or white, high carbs versus no carbs or very low carbs 
put you in an anti-inflammatory state. Just on that, I'm not saying life is perfect left and it's terrible right. I'm saying for my situation, had I known that, that probably would have changed a significant outcome back then. The other thing was when I was at that first doctor, I said, could we, I some reason was thinking that I had a fungal infection, a gut fungal infection. And one of the common references, and you can Google this, is called Candida albicans. And that was a popular diagnosis through the 90s into even up to the current time. Now we're in 2020, but it was very popular. Everything, every gut problem was a Candida albicans. Well, and it, it got to be kind of, there's almost a, a medical school poem about Candida. Uh, that, that was the basis of every, every ailment you could think of. Well, um, one of the treatments for Candida, which was a, a, a gut fungal infection, and by the way, we all have fungus in our gut, so it's not like it's with or without fungus. It's the question of how pronounced, how much of a dysbiosis, how pronounced does that fungal component of your gut microbiota uh, become? And so uh, when it becomes so large, and then it can happen, you can have bacterial dysbiosis. One particular family or bacteria gets to be so large, it causes a lot of problems. And it primarily means it's not kept under control by A, your immune system, but usually by the other components of your microbiome. So a high-carb diet feeds candida albicans. It, it, it creates the environment in which it's very easy for candida and, um, to take off. So that was another underlying factor, carbs in my microbiome. Gave it the perfect place to get started. So back to this first doctor, I said, well, why don't we try something like Nystatin? Nystatin is an antifungal. It's uh, usually not used for gut problems. It's usually used for something else. And um, I just suspected that it was, and of course, I started doing some research on fungal causes for you know, uh, inflammatory bowel disease. And there was some out there, but it wasn't a lot. It wasn't very deep. And I would show him that. He goes, oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, since he had to prescribe it, and I didn't have that right in the state of Connecticut, and you don't prescribe for yourself anyway, that um, I took that, and it seemed to have an improvement. You know, it wasn't like Shazam. It seemed to have an improvement. And then he took me off it because he didn't like that I was on this off-label use of Nystatin for so long. So he just killed it. That was it. So things reverted back to how they were. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to I hate being second guessing somebody. I just am too sick. I'm too tired. I need to be taken care of. He says it's the thing to do. We'll just follow his plan. So things slid back. Had to find another doctor. Got the blood transfusions. And now when the blood transfusions gave me some vitality again, I said, you know, I am going to find out about this. So the first thing that I looked into was a thing called FMT, fecal microbiota transplant, or otherwise known as FT now, today, FT, fecal transplant or transplantation. So by coincidence, just at the last conference, at the last low-carb conference, at the end, you get a chance of standing up and asking questions to a complete panel of some of the speakers, and you can ask general, not specific to their topics, but anything that comes up, and it's uh, it's a really an entertaining part of the, the talk, so you have to stay to the end. And uh, one guy asks, what do you think about FT, FMT? And sure enough, in the United States, the American Medical Association is dead against this. I mean, they go, you're a stupid fool to even consider it. It's highly dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. A person has killed themselves by doing it at home. Well, okay, now back to my story in 2012, going to 2013. After my blood transfusions, 
I was interested in this and I knew that I didn't know much about it. I read as much as I could about it. But there happened to be a conference at the University of Chicago, International Conference of Gastroenterology. And I go, this is for me. So I flew off to Chicago, attended that three-day conference. And meanwhile, prior to that, I got to know who the movers and shakers in the specialist world in the world. And that is one is Dr. Thomas Brody from Sydney, Australia. And the other is, forgotten his name, but from Belgium doing incredible work. I mean, they have institutions built on this particular therapy and then the adjunctive therapies that come from this. And so they're all for it. And it has turned around a number of diseases, unlike the United States, which is um, they have shut it down and, and, and naturopaths can't even advise on this. So uh, it's like, don't get caught doing that, so to say. So I got to um, get an email correspondence with Dr. Brody and the, the person from uh, Belgium that I'm sorry, I can't remember. And they're doing fascinating things. For instance, even in Belgium, they were, they're turning around diabetes just on changing their microbiome. And they do it different ways. It's One is through a, an enema up through the rectum. And the other is what they call it through a nasal gastric tube in which they put a tube down your your nose, down your throat, to your gut, into the top of your small intestine. And um, obviously, if you go through the rectum, you only get to the colon. And if you do it in the NG tube, you get it to the top of the small intestine, which is a little more optimal, but it's also very problematic to do this. As you can imagine, I'll leave you the rest of the imagination to your mind. Okay, so now I learned all about this, and now I got to meet these guys. So these guys are now sort of getting to be my superheroes because I'm now reading all their research, and and I finally get to meet them and I get to hear their presentations. And I got to know Tom Brody, Doctor Brody, uh, very well, and uh, we talked about our experiences. And now I felt I was in solid ground. So the question is, where do you find a donor? And um, this has come so that idea has come so far. It is now a business model. So there are now business models. One's called uh, Virome, which is a people send in their their stool, if you can imagine, on a regular basis, and their stool is tested for various infectional diseases and process and so on. And so they get paid some nominal fee to be a a an approved donor. So now there's this bank, which they freeze these. There's a bank of viable stool samples that they then send out or send out to hospitals and they send out to individuals that want to pay for their particular services. So it's gone well beyond. So this is, you know, uh, the AMA is so much chagrined that this has taken off. Now there's more than one company doing this. One's out of Boston and the other is probably out of Silicon Valley. So that goes on and this hadn't gotten that far yet. So this was, all right, now you had to go find a donor and Ideally, one who has not been on antibiotics, uh, one who has not had a history of infection. So I ended up using my wife as a donor because she, unlike me, I've had Lyme disease four or five times and a number of other things, lived overseas and so on and so forth, the history you don't want to have in terms of having a nice clean microbiome, but she was just the opposite. So long story short, three months of doing that of five days a week, I'm not going to go into details there, but I would say that clearly pulled me into the right direction. So not only the blood transfusion obviously helped me, but now things were now starting to improve so much that uh, I went off my meds, went off the reservation, so to say. Went off my meds, um, stopped giving myself shots, stopped taking Humira, and there's another medication too. And I started feeling a lot better. Um, I was with the second doc. I told him all about it. He thought I was foolish and it was very dangerous to go off the medications and I was going to 
you know, get tolerance to the medications that are never going to be helpful to me. So that's how that went. So now I'm off my own, on my own. At least I had a fallback. He knew what I was doing and uh, he didn't approve of any of it. And um, so I guess one little thing I'm thinking about as I pause here is that uh, the side effects of the medications are huge. And so I had told him at length what the details were from backache to fatigue and just not being able to think straight and things like that. And so when I subsequently asked for my medical notes, thinking, you know, I'll take them to the next guy, if, if I find a next guy, that uh, he did give me my medical notes. But what I realized is he did not incorporate any of that I told him about the side effects of the medications. That was just not in the notes. Interesting. You know, you can't censor what a patient says. You should be charting that the whole way through. Um, so that was kind of a black mark for him on that regard. So we moved off to Cape Cod and had a different set. And so now things are getting better for me. Uh, Judy has healed and um, has, it's not a complete process, by the way. It's, she's healed significantly from her brain surgery. And um, she had a slight disfiguration under her scalp because to take out some bone. And so, uh, but she was feeling incredibly lucky to be alive. And we're both uh, packing up the house and we gave away probably two thirds of everything we owned in the house and left and found a place to, re uh, to rent, luckily on Cape Cod. We had some former patients there. That's why we went to Cape Cod and had uh, appreciated it. We were out in Orleans for a period of five years subsequently. So at this point, when I was at the FMT level exploring things, I also was, we were getting deep into making bone broth because I was thinking about how do I heal my gut on any level from simple to complex, I'm going for it. So we learned all about making bone broth and we make jars of bone broth and uh, had to make it in the garage. I couldn't tolerate the smell then at the time. So we started with bone broth and I also started thinking about what about that fungal thing? You know, maybe I did have a fungal infection. Maybe that's a component of it. So I looked up caprylic acid, which was something I memorized from medical school. That is what you can give people among other things that have candida albicans that have a gut fungal infection. So that caprylic acid, which doesn't come that way, comes as caprylic acid triglyceride, which happens to be the product we later made, which was, we call it C8. So it's three saturated fatty acids, eight carbons long, tied together on a glycerol backbone. So that's a triglyceride. Okay. So now we had, had that. I wasn't, we, I was using somebody else's, whoever had made it back then and it wasn't very popular, but I thought that made a difference. So hmm, here I am, we're healing ourselves. We're moving forward. Uh, we have a new doc. I'm now deep into asking for specific blood work and they were very friendly, both the GI doc that I was seeing and telling everything about I was doing and you're getting scoped colonoscopy to see things improving and improving and improving. And my blood work was looking better and better and better. I did not need subsequent, um, uh, blood transfusions. I then, um, went to another gastroenterology international conference down in Miami, flew down there to meet the same people and more people internationally that were working around FMT. That was back in that stage. So then after three months of doing all that and setting it up, and it's quite a little procedure, done, over with, improved, let's move on to something else. Um, 
the looking into the bone broth uh, opened up the door to a thing called uh, ketogenic diet. Now, mind you, there were no ketogenic diet conferences. If you put into Google ketones, I don't know if you'd get anything. You'd get some PubMed references, maybe your Google Scholar, but there wasn't anything much at all. So it was getting that basically you had to drop your carbs. I mean, the classic ketogenic diet was was something that I could find information from. And um, from some of my lecturing at uh, UMass College of Pharmacy, I got to retain my some of my connections there. And they were, luckily for me, happy to chase these rather esoteric old publications on the classic ketogenic diet from the Mayo Clinic back at 1920s, 21, 22. And so I got to re-experience all that and really go through the real basic information. Uh, two books are coming out now about this. I just come out this time was with Jeff Bullock and Steve Finney's The Art and Science of um, Low-Carb Living. So that was like, wow, this is stuff right here I could look at. And so that was gave an orientation that this isn't a stupid thing to follow. So we began there. So the point I want to sort of backtrack is there's two major components, as I see it, looking back on that debacle for us and our health lives, and pushing out the environmental aspect of perhaps, which I think is Judy's causative agent, it was our diet, it was our stress. We both had high stress because now we had a financial collapse on our hands and we we're trying to get out from under this rock of a couple years, if you can imagine. Uh, and the fact that we stayed together is kind of amazing, don't you think? And so her stress manifests in her way, my stress manifests in my way, but they were both highly high inflammation that could have been controlled. Would I have, you know, the, the financial aspect of that story would not have changed, obviously. But if we were on a low carb, high fat ketogenic diet, I think the outcomes would have been severely different. And none of those uh, calamities would have happened to us. So it's the carbs and it's the stress. You put the two together. It's a little bit like dry hay and sparks. Do you think you're going to get a fire? You bet. So that I, that's where I look at that right now. Um, I think that the bone broth was really kind of a, a nice step because it was certainly soothing. It, it provided electrolytes. It provided uh, gut gut healing. There's a lot of NAC, uh, NAC, acetylcysteine in that as well. So they are anti-inflammatory. So that was the beginning of you can do this yourself a little bit. When you have doctors saying, you know, you're a crazy guy and you're just going to kill yourself and you don't and uh, you contact them afterwards, they don't want to hear from you. So isn't that interesting? Even if they're nice. So now as we moved in to Cape Cod, we still didn't have this recipe of low carb, high fat, other than going back to the classic ketogenic diet of, of 20 carbs per day. So it was hard to measure 20 grams of carbs per day. It was hard to measure that. There weren't any apps on your phone and anything else. They, and so you had to read the back of products, you know, how much, how many grams of such. So it was very, it was very, very difficult, very awkward. Then you got into uh, a couple of years later, we got into some apps in which you can just throw in the food and uh, it will calculate these things for you, which is pretty much what it is today. It's very easy to have a good sense of reality of the food that you're eating and how much, how many carbs are in it, how many grams of carbohydrates are in the food you're eating. So that's a big deal. So coming forward from that, learning as an independent factor to drop your carbs was 
probably second to getting blood transfusions. I think that let us heal very dramatically. We already knew about fish oils, you know, so our, we already knew about, we were on olive oil. I wasn't, we weren't using a lot of C8. I was seeing it as a small sort of medicinal sort of application. Uh, C8 now has become something that, yes, I do have at my noon coffee, not a lot, maybe, maybe a tablespoon, I doubt that. I do put it on my meat at night. And is it necessary or not? I don't know, but it's been so much of my health I appreciate that, you know, and I'm, I'm feeling I have a great health. I'm feeling I have a great, I'm feeling I have a great um, health right now. And so I think in part, that's what that's from. So I will sort of summarize this. Once we attended the very first medical therapeutic conference down in Tampa, and that was four or five years ago. I think that was 2015, that I realized there's a lot of healing value in this that I just didn't wasn't aware of. It wasn't anything that was taught in medical school. And I went back to look up some of my texts and it was just a reference, you know, there again for epilepsy and something like that. So as much as we think that naturopaths are much more educated in biochemistry and so on and so forth, I think they are, generally speaking, but I look back now and I ask the question, why was I not taught that? Why was that not included in our text? Because I think it's a primarily vegetarian, um, supportive lifestyle, you know, and I, I think there was a strong prejudice and you had to read between the lines kind of thing, but you certainly wasn't going to get somebody coming into, well, low carb, high fat, this is what you need to do. And certainly they're not going to be talking about carnivore. So you had to take that on your own and explore. So when I started seeing, you know, you had Dom, uh, Dominique D'Agostino and he was just coming out with Patrick Arnold and they had their exogenous ketones and the world was all about exogenous ketones, you know, and, and I looked into that and experimented that and that's appropriate for certainly some conditions like uh, Alzheimer's, MS, so on and so forth, Parkinson's, et cetera, neurological issues and, and others, but it's not across the board. And anyway, as you've heard me say before, that I think C8 caprylic acid triglyceride, C8 keto MCT oil is a far better source of exogenous ketones because it's not technically exogenous ketones. Your body converts it into 15 minutes. So that seemed to be much more soothing for us, much more appropriate. So that was an interesting experimentation along the way of realizing, well, that is actually quite great. It's obviously difficult if you have to travel and you're going to take this thing with oil for you, with you. A little more problematic. They now have dry forms of it and so on. So since then, we did really go down to the very particulars of having to measure everything and go be very pedantic about it. Um, and then we liberalized from there. So I think in this story is if you are a sick person and you're looking to improve your health, don't lose that voice. Don't believe everybody you hear, including me. I'm just giving you my story right now. And I had a challenge. And when you're very, when you're very sick, when you're very tired, and somebody needs to take care of you, somebody needs to advocate for you, that you just don't have the energy to stick up for yourself. It's hard to support that voice in the back of your head that says, I'm not quite sure if this is the right thing to do. I, I'm kind of wondering if maybe we shouldn't do this. You're so weak. You're so tired. Half of you says you're going to die anyway. Just let it go and enjoy the last 
home stretch of not having the anxiety of making these decisions. So I get that. I've been there. I languished at death for about four months until things got better. But you, you really need to, and we didn't have a team. The only thing I had on my side was medical backgrounds, and I wasn't going to be intimidated by, by ignorant doctor's advice. But I didn't have the energy to follow through until eventually I did. Um, so hold on to that voice. Now you have a number of people talking certainly about the ketogenic diet, low carb, high fat, ketogenic diet, ketogenic way of living, however you want to refer to it. If for so much research is being done that uh, you should not feel isolated. And also, don't oversimplify the low carb, high fat way of living, meaning don't say, hey, oh, I've been keto and it didn't work for me. We had to go through months, we chose it upon ourselves to go through months and measure these things out. And then we got our glucometer and we got our ketometer and all those have gotten better over the years as well. And so we started measuring for ourselves saying, you know, where are we? What is ketosis? How do you measure? What does it look like? You know, now you can get your own cheap continual glucose monitor, which is a a windfall in terms of uh, biofeedback information on you personally in live, you know, live on your phone or in your meter if you got to get one like us. So I'd say don't lose that voice. There's plenty of places you can go, but don't pretend it's simple either. Don't say, hey, I drop my carbs and increase my fats. And that—that that is the heart of it, but measure it. I'm for measuring. You know, in the very least, you start with your carbs of 20 or less. Yeah, some people can do 50 or less. Yes, some people can do 100 or less. Be conservative, start lower. And then when things get better, whatever that thing is in your life, it's weight or something else, then you can increase your carbs and maybe you have a higher carb tolerance as their reference to it. But the application of this ketogenic lifestyle is huge. And it was like I creaked open a door primarily by necessity when there really wasn't even a lot of knowledge. And now I realize there is an aquarium. There's an encyclopedia, not quite an encyclopedia, but there are a lot of things that are getting very professional attention on the application of low carb, high fat, ketones, and what they're doing. And it's just amazing. So far beyond uh, epilepsy. So the, the world of low carb, high fat is amazing. And it's still being told. And the reason I go over my story, hopefully without perseverating too much, was that it was a story of coming out and saying, there's got to be something better here. People just don't die of this stuff. You know, people just don't die of gut problems. And I'm I'm not saying this is going to be a panacea if you have cancer, but as you know, because we've interviewed Tom Segfried, we've talked about this in other episodes, it's a component that you need to look at. And then there's fasting and all these other things that have just sort of exploded. Um, try to be reasonable. Try to do some reading. I think there's some academic responsibility on your part to learn about these things. I think that measuring, getting the data, as I say in our Facebook group, is very important. And um, then when you should, should you get into blood work, another thing that's happened over the last five or six years, you can order your own blood work. You don't have to go through your doctor. And you can say, well, I want it covered by insurance. Well, why don't you go out and get your insulin and glucose, you know, spend 20 bucks on yourself, fasting, insulin and glucose, see what those numbers come back with. And then you can expand on that. It's 
these tools that are open for you to learn about yourself, take your healing seriously about yourself, is amazing. And they didn't exist not even 10 years ago. So I, I hope that's a really up note that you feel that things are possible. You know, then you get into the HIT aspect of this and the, the high intensity training and it's it's wonderful. I think there's a lot out there that just wasn't that publicly available then. So with that, I know it's been kind of a semi-stream of consciousness sort of podcast, but I thought it was important to go back to, we came from a very ugly place. My wife definitely expected me to die by the Christmas of 2012. Uh, I could not get off the floor. It was getting to be pretty miserable. And I, I had the tree picked out where I was going to hang myself. I mean, that's how bad it gets. Um, we're not there. And we've come a long way from there. So uh, this is reaching out to that voice in you that is wondering. Okay, till next time. Take care. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might've been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution, epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people in losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? And so in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered, and I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.